good morning, Freedom. My name is Eric, and I'm the pastor here. And before we dive into God's Word this morning, I thought it would be appropriate for us to pause and to pray for Ukraine and uh, all the things that are going on in our world uh, with the invasion of that country. And um, it hits close to home uh, in, a, in a way that, that many of us may not even know. There's a, there was, many of you are familiar with uh, Greenbrier Church, and uh, they used to, to meet here in the Greenbrier School District, and they actually used our building for several of their meetings. Uh, well, one of their members, Alex Petrova, is, uh, was here, he and his family, uh, for about six months out of the year. And they'd go back from Ukraine to uh, Evans, Georgia. And uh, about a week before the invasion, he had to go back to take care of some business. His wife and daughter are still here, but he is over there, part of the civilian force right now. Uh, and so what I want us to do is to pray uh, for that country. So I'm just going to guide us in prayer. I want you to pray is right there at your seat. Just make that your altar. And uh, let's begin to pray for this country, pray for Ukraine. So uh, just start off just praying for, for, uh, for peace to ensue. And just ask the Lord that he would bring about peace. That he would bring about an end to this conflict, to this war. Pray for the, the president of Ukraine and the leadership in Ukraine. That the Lord would give them wisdom and guidance and strength. Pray for our world leaders. That they too would have wisdom and discernment. Pray for Alex Perlova and his family and the many countless others that are in his same situation that from one day went from being civilians and citizens of that country to now being militia. Pray specifically for Alex's wife and his five-year-old daughter that are here in Evans. No doubt worried about their dad. And that's just a small picture of everything that's going on with so many other families to lift them up as well. Pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ that are Ukrainian that are, if you've seen anything on social media, you've seen their faith and you've seen them praying and seeking the Father, just lift them up, that in the midst of war, in the midst of trouble, that the gospel would prevail, that it would advance like it never has before. And so, Father, we do lift these things up to you. We lift up this war and this, this trouble that is happening in Ukraine, and Father, we pray that, Lord, you would bring about peace that you'd bring about an end to this conflict, that you would strengthen our brothers and sisters in Christ to provide hope of the gospel in the midst of tribulation and in the midst of trouble. 
And Father, we pray for Alex and those like him that had no plans of being a part of a militia and yet have been forced to as a result of, of Russia's aggression. Father, we do pray for the world leaders that you would give wisdom and that, Lord, you would even change the heart of Putin, that, that he would end this. Lord, we know that you are sovereign. We know that this did not catch you by surprise. And we know that you are in control. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, church. We're going to dive into God's Word. If you're new with us here at Freedom, one of the things that we do is we take books of the Bible and we teach them verse by verse. And so we have been in the Gospel of Mark for a little over a year, quite honestly, but uh, with a couple of breaks in, the, in between there. But uh, beginning in January, we started walking through the final week of Jesus's life called the Passion. And so it is going to take us from, from uh, January all the way up to Easter, and we're going to walk through uh, the, the last several chapters of the Gospel of Mark, Mark 11 through 16. And what we're doing is we are taking a look at this week that changed everything. And so if, you are, if you've been with us, you know that we uh, left off last week in Mark chapter 13. And we're spending two weeks in this chapter because it's a very difficult chapter. It's a chapter called the Olivet Discourse. And what is happening in this chapter is Jesus is talking with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, overlooking the city of Jerusalem, and he's talking about end times. He's talking about the end of the world. And what makes this passage difficult is that Jesus references two days. He talks about first the destruction of the temple that occurred in 70 AD. And he also talks about his return, his second coming, that will occur at the end of the age. And so Jesus is talking about these two days. And the challenge of this text is, is, is that, that how do we know which verses apply to the temple and its destruction in 70 A.D.? And how do we know which verses apply to Jesus' return and the end times? Now, there are three commonly held views. We talked about this last week. One view is that the entire chapter is about the end times. All 37 verses are focused on the end times. There's another view that says all the entire chapter, all 37 verses are really about the destruction of the temple. Now, the view that I particularly hold to is, is the view that throughout this chapter, Jesus weaves in and out of both talking about the temple and talking about the end times and his second coming. Verses 1 through 23 are primarily about the temple. Verse 24 through 27 are about his return. Verses 28 through 31 are primarily about the temple, though they reference his return. And then verses 32 through 37 are primarily... Uh, specifically about his return. And so if you remember from last week, this whole chapter started because Jesus had told his disciples that the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed. And he said that not one stone would be left standing. Well, the disciples were kind of freaked out about that. So they go to Jesus and they ask him two specific questions. They say, when... Will these things occur? What things? The destruction of the temple. And then they ask him, what will be the sign that, it, that we should be looking for? In other words, how will we know that the temple is about to be destroyed? And so Jesus 
begins to explain to them. But if you look at Matthew's account of this story, he says it a little bit different. What Matthew says is they ask him even an additional question, and that question is this. What will be the sign of your coming, your second coming, and of the end of the age? And that is why I believe that this text is talking about both the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, as well as Jesus' return at the end of the age. And so that's, that's why I believe that that is the, 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 the way that I view this text. Because of what, what they ask in Matthew, because of the way Jesus describes it. And he explicitly says, as we're going to see in just a few moments, this is about my second coming. But here's what I want to reiterate. We talked about this last week, but I want to make sure that we're very clear. End times discussions, when we as Christians talk about the end times, it should not be an issue that divides us. We are, it is okay if we disagree on how the end times happen. Because the reality is we don't know everything. And if we claim to know everything, uh, we're misleading ourselves and others. Because Scripture doesn't even give us all the details. What we have to do is we have to take the Scripture, analyze it, study it, learn from it, and then come up with the best conclusions that we possibly can based on it. And so we should never let end times discussions create division within the church, create division among brothers and sisters in Christ. We can disagree on the overall happenings of the end times. But I do believe there are some things that we can't disagree on. And that is this, that Jesus is coming back. That Jesus will return. And as Christ's followers, we should be longing for that return. We should be waiting for that return. We should be hoping and wanting Jesus to return. Those things we can't disagree on, that Jesus is coming back. We said this last week, but you and I are the welcoming committee, not the planning committee. So however Jesus wants to do it, he is free to do it. Just know that he is coming back. And when he does, we must be ready. So last week we focused on the events prior to 70 AD. And what Jesus called these events were, were the beginning of the birth pains. So those of you women who've given birth, you, if you've ever gone through Braxton Hicks contractions... That's what Jesus talked about. The beginning, those Braxton Hicks, those warnings that the end times are he- that we're headed toward the end times, but they're not quite here yet. And what did he talk about? He talked about these global, social, and, ecolo- and, and ec- ecological disturbances. What did he say? He said wars and rumors of wars. Sound familiar, right? Those don't mean the end. What do those mean? They're the beginning of the birth pains. Strife between nations. He talked about natural disasters and disease. But he also talked about these social pressures that are going to come upon Christians as they, as they try to follow Jesus. He talked about trials. He talked about tribulation. He talked about how families and friends will divide over their stance on Jesus Christ and their belief in who Jesus is. He talked about the fact that, that the world will hate you because you are a Christ follower. But Jesus says these things must happen. They're not the end. And he warns us, be on your guard and endure. If you remember from last week, be on your guard and endure. And the reality is that every generation of Christ's followers, from Jesus' ascension back into heaven to the moment that he returns, will experience and have experienced all of those things. 
wars and rumors of wars, strife among nations, disease, pestilence, troubles, persecution, trials, being hated for the sake of Christ. All of those things, every generation of Christ followers has and will experience those things until he returns. But today what I want us to do is I want us to focus on the return of Christ. So we're going to be in the second half of Mark 13. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you don't, the words will be on the screen. But these verses, I believe, specifically deal with his return. And Jesus' return should influence every day of our lives. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he said this. He said, I have two days on my calendar. This day and that day. He said, those are the only two days on my calendar. This day, today, and then that day when Jesus returns. In other words, you and I, as followers of Christ, should live this day, today, in light of that day when Jesus returns. That's how we should live our lives. In light of the return of Christ, we should be focused on that. We should be living our lives based on that. So we're going to pick up in Mark 13, beginning in verse 24. Because here's what I think happens. I think Jesus sees this opportunity as he's talking to his disciples about the destruction of the temple. I think he sees an opportunity to look beyond the temple to this greater day. The day that he will return in glory and in power. <clears throat> Look at verse 24. And it says, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Verse 26, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and great glory. And then he will send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Let's pause right there. What is Jesus doing? He's using these end times. He's, he's using this eschatological language, this vocabulary, this imagery that says this is the end. He says, in those days, what days? The end days, the end times after this great tribulation, after this period of tribulation, what does he say? The sun and moon will go dark. Stars will start falling from the sky. Listen, the disciples in that moment would have recognized this as Old Testament apocalyptic language. They would have understood that, man, this, Jesus is talking about the end times. Not only that, if you go to Revelation 6, you can go and read Almost verbatim, the exact thing Jesus described in Revelation 6. The sun and moon going dark, stars falling. And listen, let's be honest. When the sun and moon no longer give light and stars start falling from the sky, you can bet everything you've got that it's the end. Like, it's over, folks. When that, when that happens, just realize, okay, Jesus is coming back now. So that's, that's, I mean, that's what he's saying. But what I want to do is I want to see... Three observations that Jesus gives us about his second coming, about his return, about the end times. The first observation is this. Jesus' second coming is way different than his first coming. When Jesus first came on the earth, he came unnoticed in this world. He came 
in obscurity. No one knew who he was. During his second coming, listen, every eye will see. There will be no doubt that he is returning. His first coming, he came to take away sins. His second coming, he's coming to judge sins. His first coming, he came as a humble servant. His second coming, he's coming as a reigning king. His first coming was veiled. He veiled his glory. And then the second coming, he's coming with great power and with great glory. So church, it would be wise for us to reflect often on Jesus' second coming. Knowing that he is going to return should fill each and every one of us with comfort and hope. Knowing that his return will be personal. It will be for you and it will be for me. Knowing that it will be visible, that every eye will see him returning. And knowing that it will be bodily. He will return in bodily form to establish his kingdom forever. He will return in glory. He will return in power. And that day will be a celebration for all of us who believe. And it will be terror and judgment for all who don't. That's the first observation. That his second coming is going to be way different than his first coming. The second observation I want to make is this. That Jesus will come again. Jesus will come again to gather his people. Jesus will come again to gather his people. That's the purpose. The purpose of Jesus' second coming is to gather his church from every corner of the earth, along with those who have gone before us and who are in heaven with him now. Like Revelation 7 says, it says that there will be a great multitude. And this great multitude will be from every nation, from every tribe, from every people, from every language, and they will all be gathered as one great family of God. In heaven, in Jesus' return, there will be all peoples gathered together for the sake of Christ. His return will be a gathering of like no other. It will be a gracious gathering. It will be a righteous gathering. It will be a loving gathering. It will be the permanent gathering of the family of God. Now, I want you to notice what Jesus says, because he tells us when. He says when, he tells us when he's going to return to gather his elect. Look at verse 24 again. But in those days, what days? The end days. After that tribulation. Jesus says after this time of tribulation, he's going to return the second coming drama will begin to unfold. Those are Jesus' words. That's what he said. Now, if you were like me, I grew up in a church that taught this idea called a pre-tribulation rapture. Anybody familiar with that? And so that was what I grew up learning from. I I grew up learning this idea of this pre-tribulation rapture. And there are basically three views of 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 the rapture of the church when they go to be with Jesus. There's the pre-tribulation rapture, which means that before the tribulation, the church will be raptured up to to be protected from the tribulation. There's a view that's kind of a mid-tribulation rapture that has a different kind of two different ideas with that, but that means that somewhere in the middle of the tribulation, before it gets really really bad, the church will be raptured up. And then there's this idea of a post-tribulation rapture, meaning that at the end of the tribulation, after it is done, Jesus will return to gather his church. Now, this idea of the pre-tribulation rapture is, is one that, that I think has is, is, is been popular uh, since really about the 19, 1850s. That's when it began. The whole idea 
of a pre-tribulation rapture doesn't date back further than 1850 when John Darby began talking about it. Then this guy named Charles Schofield wrote it in his Schofield Bible, and uh, that was in, in around 1909. So it's a relatively new teaching within the history of the church. But what it basically says is that Jesus, when he comes back, he will rapture the church out of the world. And then this great tribulation will occur after which Jesus will return. If any of you have read the Left Behind books or seen the movies, that's where this idea comes from of this pre-tribulation rapture. If you haven't seen it, let me give you a taste of it by checking out this video. Just hear me out. I have been praying for you to come home, and I believe that that is why God brought you here. I just want you to be ready. Ready for what? As unbelievable as this may sound, people from all over this plane simply vanished. I know you all want answers, and believe me, so do I, and I'll do my best to get them. The God my father talked about would never do something like this. It's not just here, it's all over the world. You returned from the left behind that's the trailer for the movie that came out several years ago and that is the view of the pre-tribulation rapture that jesus is going to come and we're all going to be sitting around and some of you are going to be taken because you're believers some of you are going to be left behind to deal with the tribulation afterwards here's my understanding of the new testament as i read the new testament i understand that jesus has promised that he would return that's without a doubt and in that returning he would do two things he would rescue those who trust him, and he would judge those who reject him. I don't see in Scripture that there are two returns, one to rescue and then one to judge. I believe there is one return of Christ in the future. And the, here's the reality. The idea of a pre-tribulation rapture is not explicitly spoken about in Scripture. Now, we can imply it. We can read into it. We can look at different texts and say, and come up with this conclusion that perhaps that's what's going to happen. That we will be raptured up out of this world and then Jesus will, will protect us, save us from the tribulation and then he will return. But here's the good news. There are only four passages of scripture that deal with the rapture. There are only four passages. So you don't have to go and look up hundreds of verses to discover what the scripture is teaching us about this end of times rapture about this gathering of the church we don't have to go look at it, tons of verses we only have to look at four and those four verses are found in matthew 13 as well as matthew uh, as well as i mean mark 13 as well as matthew 24 and luke 21 it's the same same event that's happening there's second thessalonians 1 and 2 1 Corinthians 15, and the fourth one is 1 Thessalonians 4. And so what I want us to do is I want us to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture so that you can discover kind of where I sit as far as the, this end of times 
comes, when Jesus returns. And so the best way to interpret Scripture is allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Not books, not man, but let's, let, let's just look at the Bible and see what it says. Are we okay with doing that? Because I know for some of you, this is blowing your mind because you were taught just like I was taught. Like the church is going to be raptured out of here. We're going we're gonna to be driving down the road and our Honda is going to be left and we're going to fly up and we're, and we're just going to run into other people and it's going to create all this stuff. And, and, uh, and so many of us were, grew up in that. And so I want us to go to Scripture and let Scripture interpret Scripture. So let's look at Mark 13 again. But in those days, what does it say? Y'all didn't sound very confident. What does it say? After that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give its light, will not give its light, stars will fall from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then, and what does it say next? And then, or at that time, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. So that happens after the, this, that tribulation. The Son of Man will be seen coming in glory and power. In verse 27, And then he will send out his angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth and the ends of heaven. Who are his elect? Us. Christians. Followers of Jesus. Those are the elect. And so Jesus is saying, after this transitional period of tribulation... After this time of trouble, then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. This is as as simple a narrative as Jesus taught it. He didn't say before the tribulation, the church will be pulled out of this world. It's not what he said, is it? He didn't say the church will be pulled out and escape. No, he says after this tribulation, then people will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds, and then he will gather his elect. So that's the first passage. Let's interpret that based on the others. First, uh, Second Thessalonians. You can write these down just so you can have as a reference, because I encourage you, listen, don't just take my word for it. Don't just believe because, what I, because I believe it. Look and study the scripture for yourself. And again, we can disagree on this and still have fellowship. This is we don't know the answers. This is just my interpretation based on the text. So let's look at 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 through 8. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So there's the judgment he's talking about. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted. There's the rescue we talked about. As well as to us. When the Lord Jesus, listen to this, is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So what Jesus is saying is that with Christ coming again, when he comes, he will repay unbelievers with affliction, that's judgment, And he will grant relief to believers. That's rescue. And it says that these two things happen when? When the Lord is revealed from heaven and he comes in flaming fire. 
That's the second coming. That's when those two things will happen. Let's look at 2 Thessalonians 2, beginning in verse 1. Now, listen to what Jesus says. Considering the what? The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and what? Our being gathered together to him. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. Either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. So what's Paul saying? He's saying, listen, when it comes to the return of Jesus and the gathering of the elect, the gathering of his people, don't be alarmed when people say things. Don't be concerned. Because if you remember, the Thessalonican church, were they were upset that they had missed the return of Christ. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But he says, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day, what day? The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the gathering together to him on that day cannot come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God and object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And look at verse 5. Look what Paul says. He says, don't you remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Isn't that great? He's like, guys, I've already talked about this. Like, I taught you about these end time things, and you seem to have forgotten them because you're confused now. But he says, these things can't happen. What things? The return of Jesus Christ and the gathering of the saints unless, and until rather, until the, until the man of lawlessness has been revealed. Who's the man of lawlessness? That's the Antichrist in the end times. So what is Paul saying? He's saying that Jesus can't return and gather his elect until those things happen. In other words, Jesus will return after the Antichrist has been revealed. Now, we need, I told you this just a minute ago, but we need to understand these Christians in Thessalonica believed that the day of the Lord had already come and they had missed it and their loved ones had missed it. So Paul is arguing that that can't be the case. He's saying, listen, guys, no, 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 you, you haven't missed it. But notice how simple it would have been for Paul to say, guys, you haven't missed it because we're still here. You haven't missed it because we've been raptured up and the world has been left behind. That's not what Paul says, is it? Paul doesn't say it's not here because we haven't been raptured. Instead, he says it can't have happened because the rebellion hasn't happened. That's the end time rebellion against God's people. And the Antichrist has not been revealed. Those are the words of Paul. Let's go look at 1 Corinthians 15. I know this is a lot, but I think we need to interpret Scripture upon Scripture. 1 Corinthians 15, 50, verses 51 and 52, he says, Behold, Paul is speaking again. I'm telling you a great mystery. This mystery of the end times. He says, We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In other words, 
at the end times, not every Christian is going to be gone. Not every Christian is going to die or, 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 or be raptured away. We're not all going to sleep, but we'll all be changed. And then what he says, in a moment, and we quote this verse a lot, right? In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Paul says that we will be changed at the last trumpet. What does that mean? Well, if you study the book of Revelation, it teaches you that there's a series of trumpets at the end times. And each trumpet will bring about judgment. Each trumpet will bring about tribulation. Each judgment will bring about different curses upon the earth. And what it says in, in, in Revelation is that there's this last trumpet, this seventh trumpet, and it will be the last trumpet. And that occurs at the end of the great tribulation. And when that trumpet blasts, Jesus will appear in the sky, in the heavens, coming to gather his elect and to establish his kingdom here on earth. So when Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that Jesus will come at the last trumpet, he's pointing to the fact that this will come at the end of the great tribulation. Now there's a final text, possibly the most important. In this 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 13. It says this, But we, we don't want you to be uninformed. Brothers, we don't want you to be uninformed. For those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. Then he goes on to say, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those who have died, that's what that means. For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until what? The coming of the Lord, his return, his second coming, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the what? Trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, what is Paul saying? Because this is often the go-to text for a pre-tribulation rapture but notice what paul actually says he says on the day of the lord's return he will descend from heaven with a cry of command with the voice of an archangel with the sound of a loud trumpet blast that is the same last trumpet from first corinthians 15 Those are in description of Jesus' second coming at the end. And then he says, the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ will rise first. And those who are alive at our Lord's coming, in other words, there are going to be Christians alive during this time at our Lord's coming, and they will rise to meet him in the air. 
And we see the purpose of these events is not to go away, but to meet Jesus as he returns. You see, Paul is not talking about Jesus taking us out of the world to stay, but rather he's talking about lifting us up to participate in his triumphal return. And you're going, Eric, where do you get that? Paul is using the language from Roman conquest. See, during the time that Paul was writing this letter, the Romans would go and they would go and conquest other lands. And what would happen is they would go on two or three year military campaigns. And they would go and they would march and they would have victory. And you know the Roman Empire was, uh, was, was, had dominated the entire world at that time. But what would happen, this is what's amazing, at the, at the end of these campaigns, at the end of their victory, what would happen is the army would return back to their city. And they would camp outside the city. And they would send a messenger into the city to say that the army has returned. That the army is back. And then what the citizens of that city would do is they would prepare for the return. They would get everything ready for the celebration. They would be putting up, getting the city cleaned up, getting, getting all the mess cleaned up, getting the city ready for this banquet, for this celebration, for this time of victory. And then, this is what's so amazing, what would happen is there would be this loud, they would, they would blast this loud trumpet within the walls of the city. And all of the citizens of Rome would march out to the army and then march back into the city with the army. All simultaneously. Why were they doing that? Because the citizens participated in the victory just as much as the conquering army did. That's the picture that Paul is giving us in 1 Thessalonians 4. That, that when Jesus comes back in conquering power, believers, both dead and alive, will be called up to meet him in the air at, that, at the blast of that last trumpet. Not to stay there, but to return with him in triumph. To participate in his exaltation and in his glory and in his kingdom. That's the imagery Paul's using. And it seems that Paul's writing this to comfort the Thessalonians. He says, listen, don't mourn as those without hope. Why? Because the Thessalonians were saddened again that their dead loved ones had missed the return of Christ. But Paul assured them, no, 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 no. You haven't missed it at all. In fact, the dead in Christ have not missed his return. In fact, they'll be the first ones there. As soon as that trumpet blasts, the dead in Christ will rise first to meet him in the air, along with, followed by, immediately those that remain, those that are still here. The dead in Christ will rise, and then all of the, all of the believers will be gathered together in this whole assembly to come to earth in triumph, to set up his kingdom here on earth. Now, I know this is a lot. And I know this is possibly different worldview than and 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 teaching that you may have been taught before. But here's here's what I want you to grasp. There is a vastly different gospel message between the church being raptured away from the tribulation versus the church being protected within the tribulation. Just look at the book of Exodus as a model for how God protected His people 
in the midst of those plagues. There's a huge difference between the gospel message that we preach and that we teach that would prepare us for escape or prepare us for endurance. Because remember what Jesus said last week. He said, endure to the what? End. And this is, this is, this is why I believe we should prepare for endurance as followers of Christ and not escape. Because my fear is that the church, if we're not prepared to endure, the moment tribulation happens, the moment hard times come along, we're going to be one longing for escape. I mean, just, just take the last two or three years. How many people have fallen away because of difficult times of a coronavirus, much less the end time tribulation? Why? Because the church is not prepared to endure. My grandmother used to say that she goes, I, I pray, and she, was, she, she would say, I pray that we're raptured, but I want to prepare that we go through the tribulation. I want to prepare that we're not. But I think it's pretty, pretty wise. Because again, we don't know. I'm just telling you based on my belief and what I've studied in Scripture. But, you know, I, I think part of this is to prepare us to endure. You see, we in America don't face much tribulation and much trial and much persecution for following Christ. But that day is coming. And when it comes, we must be prepared to endure to the end. And so my reasoning for teaching this and showing us this is because we have to be ready, church. Ready to endure difficult times. Ready to press through, not just looking for escape but being ready for when he comes. And I personally don't think that the New Testament teaches that God rescues his people from trial, but rather he protects his people through trial. And what did James tell us? He said, expect trials. Expect difficulties. Well, there's one final observation that I want to make in this in this end times second coming of Jesus and that is this that Jesus will come again but we don't know when we have no idea when we know that it's going to come after the rebellion and after the antichrist is revealed we know that we saw that in Thessalonians but we don't know when and let's look at Mark 13 verse 32 but concerning that day and that hour what is that that is his return no one knows but even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So what does he say? Be on guard. Stay awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. And when he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to do what? Stay awake. Therefore, Jesus says, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all. So get this, 
Remember, Jesus is talking to four of his disciples in this moment. He says, what I say to you, you four, I say to all. That's every single one of us. That includes the 12. That includes all of us that are his disciples. What does he say to us? Stay awake. Be prepared. Stay awake. Be alert. Be ready. See, Jesus, Jesus is coming. And he, when he does, he will gather his elect. And that has caused many to try to calculate when his return is, to try to say, well, I've, I've got a date. And they'll look at Mayan calendars, and they'll look at all this other junk, and they'll try to set dates based on when Jesus... What? They're ignoring his own words. What does he tell us? You won't know. So stop trying. Just stay awake. Be ready. You don't know when I'm going to return. Now, I love that. Let's look at Acts 1. This is so great. Now, this is right after Jesus has risen from the dead, just before he ascends into heaven, okay? And so the disciples are going, is this the time? Like, you've been in the grave for three days, now you're alive, you spent, you know, a couple of months with us, just over a, almost two months with us, like, now you're getting ready to ascend, is this the time of your kingdom being established? Is this the time you're coming back? And look what he says in, the, in Acts 1, just write this down in verse 6, I don't think we have the verses on there, I added this last night, uh, it says this, so when they had come together, again, he's getting ready to ascend. So they come together. They ask them, Lord, they, they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom? So he's going, hey, is this the time of your return? You were in the grave. Now you've returned. Let's go, Jesus. Let's restore the kingdom. And listen to what he says in verse 7. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. So what is Jesus saying? They ask Jesus, is now the time? He goes, it's none of your business. It's not for you to know. But then in verse 8, he does give them their business. And here's what he says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus says, it does, you don't get to know when I return. That's none of your business. What is your business is to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's what Jesus says our business is. Not to try to figure out when he's going to return, but he says you have a responsibility and you and I have a job to do. That's what Jesus tells us. Our responsibility is to be on our guard, to stay awake, to endure to the end. That's our responsibility, church. And what is our job? To remain faithful to the mission, to remain faithful to the great commandment and the great commission. What is our job? Our job is to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Our job is to be his witnesses where we live, work, and play. That's what he tells us our job is to do. Not to try to figure out when he's going to return. Not to even try to figure out if what we talked about today is actually the way he's going to return. But we are to stay awake and carry on the mission that he's called us to. In other words, in light of Jesus' Jesus's return, in light of the fact that he is coming back, how does 
that day impact this day? I think it does two things. I think it should bring about a spiritual alertness in each and every one of us and a mission urgency in each and every one of us. Listen, church, if you and I are going to live this day in light of that day, we need to be spiritually alert. We need to be changing our priorities to make sure that we are in his word, that we are devoted to him, that we are loving him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we are serving him, that we are devoted to him, that he has every bit of our lives. That spiritual alertness needs to be so prevalent in our lives that there is no doubt that we are his. And secondly, we should have a mission urgency, realizing that he could come back any day. Just like Alex had no idea that he would be entering into a war when he returned home to Ukraine, we have no idea when God's going to establish the Antichrist and his return will be imminent. And so what do we do? We share the gospel where we live, work, and play. We have mission urgency each and every day of our lives, realizing that our time to share the truth of the gospel with others is short. And that he is coming back. And when he does, he will judge those who don't believe. So church, let us live with spiritual alertness and mission urgency until he comes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we don't want to be like those who are asleep. We want to be awake. We want to be alert. We want to be ready for your return. Jesus, we don't want to miss the opportunities that you've given us to carry your gospel where we live, work, and play. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us a spiritual alertness and a mission urgency like no other. And, Father, if any of us that call ourselves Christ's followers have been asleep at the wheel, God, wake us up. Use this teaching from from the Mount of Olives to say, be alert, stay awake. Knowing that God today may be the last day to repent. It may be the last day to share the gospel with someone that we love. It may be the last day to forgive someone that's hurt us. Help us to have this spiritual alertness knowing that that today may be the last day that we get to to call out to you, to cry out to you, to, to have fellowship with you here on this earth. And Lord, we, I pray that you'd give us this mission urgency. And we would say, you know what? We have to remain faithful to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love our neighbors as ourselves and carry the gospel where we live, work, and play. And Father, I pray for anyone here that has never placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you show them that today that, that he is returning. And when he does, it is too late. He comes to judge those who have never trusted in him. And if that's you, whether you're here or whether you're online, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. That today you would place your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. That you would say, Jesus, I give myself to you. 
I believe that your death and your resurrection is payment for my sin. And I surrender my life to you as Lord. And I invite you to lead me and to guide me. And if you prayed a prayer similar to that, I pray that you you would speak to someone who invited you today. Speak to one of our church members in the lobby. If you're online, shoot us an email, text us, whatever it is. Just let someone know that today you gave your life to to Jesus Christ. So, Father, help us to live this day and help us to live tomorrow and help us to live every day that you let us live on this earth in light of that day when you return. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, I can't think of a better way for us to celebrate the second coming of Christ than by taking communion and remembering his sacrifice while he was here on this earth. And so if you're if you are with us this morning and new with us, there are four stations around this room uh, where you can go at your own leisure over this next song, the song of response, and you can go and you can participate in communion. And uh, you can do it as a couple, you can do it as a family, you can do it with friends. But what we ask is the same thing that Paul said, whenever you do this, whenever you take this cup, that represents Jesus' blood. And take the bread that represents his broken body on our behalf to remember. To remember his sacrifice, to remember his immense love for us. But also use this time as an opportunity to not to, to remember, but also to look forward. To look forward in celebration of his return, knowing that when he does come back, He's coming to gather you and I. If you're a Christ follower, feel free to participate in communion with us. If you're not a Christ follower yet, if you're not of walking with Jesus, don't don't follow or not following Jesus. We just invite you just to stand and and observe. Uh, you don't have to move. You can stay right in your seat. We won't draw attention to you. Uh, no one will notice. But we do ask that if you do, if you're not following Jesus, not to participate in the Lord's Supper, because that is a sacrament that is reserved for those of us who call Jesus Lord. Let's stand, church. Let's worship our risen Savior who is returning one day to gather us home.